Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Being around music a lot really gave me this view of creation, and this is really helpful when you're writing a book, as I, as, I, as I know you are, is something that you prepare for, you prepare for. You know, if you're a musician, you, you play your scales, you practice the song, you go over the chord progressions, you look at whatever you need to look at, and then you show up to play and you let go of all of that. And if you don't, then you're playing by the book and it's boring and it doesn't have any life. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Susan, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I am so completely delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. You know, I am familiar with some of the work that you've done, um, you know, read your book, The Wisdom of a Broken Heart, uh, and also just know about you through the various circles that we run in. So it's really cool to have you here. Um, For the people in our audience who may or may not know about your work and who you are, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your story, your journey, your background, and how that has led you to everything that you're up to now? (laughs) Um, Yes, I will try to answer that very awesome question. Um, Well, I am a writer. I've written eight books, and I am a Buddhist teacher, and I'm founder of an online community called the Open Heart Project, which is, I'm pretty sure, like the biggest mindfulness community that only exists online in the world. Wow. I I really can't think of any other one that's, you know, that comes close. But anyway, so that's been a very interesting experience. I was not exactly intending to do that, but that's what happened. And I have done all sorts of things in my life. I was in the music business for a fairly long time, and I was, I've had my own business as a book packager. But always I seemed to gravitate to things that were somehow about your inner life, your inner experience, your unique presence on this planet, for lack of a better phrase, and no matter what I did. And so I started practicing meditation more than 20 years ago. And I immediately was like, this is it. This is, yes, thank you. I will have much more of this. And I became, fairly quickly, I took formal vows to become a Buddhist, uh, which is called taking refuge, which even just that phrase still makes me kind of choked up because I love that phrase. And I practiced the Dharma for about 10 years, just on my own, basically, practicing meditation and reading books and occasionally going to classes. But really, it was a very, very intimate sort of exploration for me. And it was uh, wonderful. And at somewhere in here, and just stop me if I'm going on and on too long, but somewhere in here, I, t- my boyfriend and I were t- talked about getting married. And 
I was like, why would anyone do that (laughs) to someone they like? Because it just really does not seem to work out that often. And I, I was in the music business. The music business was starting, sort of starting to like crater. This was in like 2000 or so. And I was thinking about, well, I love this guy and he loves me. And, you know, so what? Everybody I know who's divorced, they also, you know, love their person. And I, I, I was like, let's just not see each other for like a month so I can think this over. And I kind of had this epiphany during this time. And he was so kind and, and patient and sweet to just wait. And the epiphany was, yeah, I love him. But what does that have to do with making a life that we both might love? And my previous relationships, most of which were good, I had good ones, but they were over, just sort of failed because, not because we didn't love each other, but because we couldn't make a life together that we, that we both loved. I don't know if you can hear, there's a train going by here. Um, so I was like, okay, well, well, what do I know about the way he views our life? I know the way he views me and I view him and so on. So I just started writing down these questions like, are we going to keep our money in the same bank account? And what is your kid going to call me? And what holidays are we going to celebrate? And just these very, I thought, very pragmatic questions, but that people seem to argue about. And we went through these questions and it was actually very enlightening. And someone said to me, I was talking to a friend about this, and she said, that would make a good book. And I was like, oh, well, hmm, interesting. And I I lived in New York City at the time. I worked in the music business, and I knew an agent through various whatever media connections. And I told him about this. He said, yeah, well, maybe. So he told me how to write a proposal, and I wrote this book called The Hard Questions. And somehow it got published. And then, you know, kind of nothing happened. You know, it was good. It was fine. There were some articles in magazines and... But my life basically continued as it was before. And at this time, I'd left and started my own business, packaging the written word with some other form of media for people who are interested in actually experiencing what uh, spirituality and wellness writers were suggesting. And so I was sitting in my office, just minding my own beeswax, and the phone rings, and my assistant says, it's the Oprah show on the other line. And, you know, long story short, I went on the show and the book became a huge success. It became a New York Times bestselling book for many months. And then I was a writer and a, and a quote, relationships expert. You know, not really, but somehow this whole, my world around me shifted, although I, I remain the same. And I guess the reason I'm telling this story this way is because it was at that point I was getting like phone calls from Us Magazine to comment on celebrity breakups and stuff. And I thought, oh, I better really deepen my practice right friggin' now because I could get very confused by this and start to actually think I am a relationships expert. And I know I'm not. So I need to just really deepen my spiritual practice. And so I went on this... I went on long retreat. I started really ramping up my practice and my study. And I went to seminary, Buddhist seminary, <clears throat> and then became a meditation instructor. And throughout this, I kept trying to write things, and I had some more books come out, nothing that equaled that success. But 
all of that kind of, you know, led to, I would say, the Open Heart Project is probably my going to be my magnum opus. I don't know, but uh, it sort of happened by my own personal inspiration and natural proclivities, the things I was naturally interested in, and then a hell of a lot of serendipity and coincidence and, and, and just odd, for, odd fortunate breaks. Hmm. So you having heard uh, some of our interviews, one of the things I, I like to do with everybody is look back at the, the formative experiences of their life long before the work that they're doing uh, is what we knew them for. Like growing up, you know, parents, you know, childhood, all that. Mm-hmm. Were there formative experiences in those early parts of your life that would ultimately lead you down this trajectory? <laughs> well, it's interesting because when I look at it now, <clears throat> excuse me, I feel like the traje- I was born into this trajectory. I don't feel necessarily that life events happened to create it, but that the life events that did happen, I somehow took onto this trajectory. I guess the point I'm making is that there's a sense of sort of fate and kismet. And yes, I was, I had, a, you know, whatever, a, I'd say a normal middle class upbringing. But from Jump Street, you know, from the, my first memories are of, get me the hell out of here. I, nobody was mean to me. I, my parents were wonderful and, you know, we had our fights and whatever, but there was no abnormal problems. But I was completely hell-bent on just get me the frig out of here. I don't belong here. I don't know where. I do belong, but it's not here. And I, I, I really left home when I was about 16 and... I, I didn't go to college. I just did other things. I was a bartender. I was a cocktail waitress. I was a taxi driver. I did, you know, whatever. I don't know. I'm not quite sure what was going to happen with my life. But at one point when I was a, this was a formative moment. I wasn't a child particularly, but I was still a teenager. I was a cab driver in Boston. And I was sitting outside a bar at like 2 a.m. on August night. I'll never forget it. It was really steaming hot. And I was just waiting for drunk people to come out, you know, but as taxi drivers will do. And I was listening to the radio and I was smoking because I smoked back then. And this song came on the radio by Bruce Springsteen called Dancing in the Dark. And I just started just grooving. I don't know what, I always love music. And there's a, a line in there that goes, there's something happening somewhere, baby. I just know that there is. And the second I heard that, it was like, I, it's like something snapped in me. I was like, there's something happening somewhere. It is not here. I'm out of here, too. So I just literally got in my car. Actually, I borrowed a car. It wasn't even mine. And just thought, I'm just going to, I'm like, I'm Jack Kerouac right now. I'm just going to drive. And I have a little bit of money, and I'll go visit friends, and I'll sleep on people's couches. And when I need to get a job, I'll get a job. And I'm just going to see what happens. I'm just, it's out there. Something, somewhere. And so I, I drove around probably for a few months. I had some wild, awesome experiences. I had to run, you know, ran myself out of certain places before I got in too much trouble. And and then I knew I wanted to go to Austin, Texas, because I loved blues. 
And back then, this was like uh, mid-late 80s. I'm like, yeah, that's, there's, that's a great place. I want to go there. And as I was driving there, I missed the exit. And I tried to take it at the last second. And my car hit like a curb. And it was basically disabled. I, and I didn't have enough money to get it fixed. So I lived in Austin. <laughs> and I looked at, I looked at the newspaper because that's how we did it back then. And there was a job listing for a cocktail waitress at Antone's Austin's Home of the Blues, which was and is, although much different now, an incredible nightclub. It's like unbelievable. All the legends of this genre and Stevie Ray Vaughan would drop in and sit in and it was like an amazing scene and it was a great job. And I loved working there. And that was a very formative experience. I'd say at that point, still a young person, basically, I just started to look at things in a different way. I just, I was out of the suburbs for sure. And music really, really changed my life. Okay, so a lot of questions about that. (laughs) But where I want to start with this is asking you about uh, working as a cocktail waitress and a cab driver, two things that probably most of us will never get to experience firsthand. I mean, I've been a driver for Lyft on occasion, um, but I mean, things were so different then. Sure. And I'm curious, what did you learn about people uh, from those experiences that you have brought into the work that you do today? Mm, boy, that's a great question. Not the typical question a Buddhist teacher gets asked, mm-hmm. so thank you very much. Um, Looking at it now, I would say that what I learned was that everybody is very frightened. When a person gets in a cab, they, of course, you're getting in the car with a stranger. So you're either like, do you know how to get here? I don't know if you know how to get here. Am I going to be able to get there or am I going to have to figure it out? You know, again, pre-GPS days. and Or else people are like, just take me here. They're just sort of gruff. Very few people actually enter into a situation with a stranger with a kind of gentleness or warmth. Especially, you know, it's sort of like a servant type thing. So there's a a fear of looking at other people as human when you also need them to do something for you. And as a cocktail waitress, and then I was a bartender um, actually for a pretty long time, it was amazing to see the hope and fear equal in equal measure with which people walk into a bar and how as someone who's just trying to serve them drinks and get them to pay and so on you just want to skirt both so there's just a lot of craziness in a nightclub and But basically, I'd say what I learned in both cases was how afraid everyone is and how much we're all trying to hide it. Hmm. So earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that when you were younger, you felt like you didn't belong. And Mm -hmm. part of me wonders if every one of us feels that to some degree. Did you feel that way too? Yeah, I do still at moments. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know that it's something that I've entirely shaken as an adult. 
Mm-hmm. And the question is how we start to find our sense of belonging in our lives. Boy, yeah. It's so true. Yeah, it's, it takes so much self-trust. I wouldn't even say self-confidence because that's too easy to misconstrue as some kind of certainty. But self-trust, trust in your instincts, trust in your inspiration, and trust in your way of doing things because our world is like lousy with messages about how to be and how to become those things. And even in our most intimate life, our love life, our emotional life, when we look for guidance, we are often given some sort of system to work with. But we're almost we're given almost no instruction on how to know ourselves or how to be receptive we're more it's more like and receptivity is my current fixation i'm very very kind of obsessed with this quality of receptivity but we are basically given a blueprint and the more afraid our parents are often the more stringent that blueprint is through no fault of their own we're given a blueprint And then we're given a lot of, you know, sort of field notes on how to become this thing that someone else thinks we should be, either our parents or our culture or our society. And to step outside of that, maybe you are that, but to know whether you are or you aren't takes some independence of mind and some trust in your own gut. I don't know what other word to use for it. Not your heart, not your head, but your your longings, your desires, your inner knowing. It, nobody really teaches you how to trust those things or that you even should. So I think it's natural to feel like, where's my, where are my people? That uh, capacity to self-trust or to learn how to trust yourself, uh, do you think that that's only something we gain through experience? No, I don't. I think it's, you know, I'm a meditation teacher. I think it's something that we gain through meditation. It's, but not, not everybody has to meditate to do this, but there's, yeah, sure, okay, I'll modify it. Experience is helpful, but we all know people and we have all been the person, at least I have been, who makes the same mistake over and over and over and over again, or makes this not even a mistake necessarily, but the same misjudgment over and over and over again. And experience doesn't seem to always help. It, it's great getting older, you know, there is that benefit. But to hear your own voice distinct from the voice around you takes some willingness to be quiet. And there's no doing that's going to introduce you to that part of yourself. Only being, relaxing, receiving. This is why I'm so obsessed with receptivity in part, because the things that we most long for in this world, I think it's pretty safe to say, love and wisdom and creative creative self-expression and insight and innovation... These things all have something in common, and it is that they are things we receive. They are not things we can go out and crank up, no matter how smart we are or how 
hard we work. You cannot go out and get love. You cannot go out and get an idea. It's something that arises. And so to cultivate, and self-knowledge very much fits in this bailiwick. So to cultivate that space of receptivity is not a gesture of doing. It's a gesture of non-doing, of waiting, of creating space, and then following what arises. It's not very American. <laughs> well, but it's awesome. That was actually my next question is, you know, the sort of type A go-getter person hearing that will probably be rolling their eyes a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I mean, especially in the culture that we live in where we're constantly seeing everybody's highlight reels roll through our Facebook feeds and <laughs> everybody is accomplishing something. I mean, I honestly feel lazy uh, most days, despite everything that I've created this year. Right. And that actually is, is I'm curious, you know, how does this impact people whose lives are like that? Yeah. Well, I would say, you know, try it. Try being the person who attempts to accomplish everything that that they desire through doing and see what happens. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not saying that this my way is the way it has to be done, but I'm saying try it. And I will also say that when I go out and teach, I talk continually to people who have taken that route and find that the things they want most are missing when they get to the destination. And those, you know, where is my energy? Where is my inspiration? Where is my joy? Where is my, you know, happiness with my life? It, it, it does not happen through getting to a destination. I know it's sounding all weird and zen and stuff, but I'm just speaking from experience. I'm not telling you something you know, theoretical. Mm -hmm. So also, you know, in our world of the things that we want to accomplish, people who are, everyone in in the world is starting a business and, and that's awesome. I totally love the entrepreneur, solopreneur, just creative self-expression thing. I mean, I'm in it. I do it myself. But the qualities that are valued are things like the ability to innovate, the ability to innovate fast, the ability to execute with others seamlessly and then let go and move on, and the ability, once you get to a certain size, to create culture. Those things do not respond to an atmosphere of speed and fear. They just don't. They, they go look for someone else to visit. So innovation and, you know, communication and execution don't happen in an environment of anxiety. They just don't. So if you're type A and you want to just nail the accomplishments, I say do it. I I also am very ambitious and, excuse me, really focused on getting, on doing things but some balance must be present. Otherwise, you, you just rub the whole thing raw and then, you know, it dies. <laughs> so I want to come back to this and, and spend a lot of time talking about mindfulness and meditation, but I want to do that a little later in our conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, really interesting stuff. Uh, but 
one of the things I'm curious about is as somebody who spent a lot of time in the music business, you mentioned uh, all these artists and all these blues singers. I'm curious how music has influenced and shaped the way you write Mm -hmm. um, and how you do your work. Like, how does it affect your voice as a writer? Hmm. That's so interesting. I don't know that it affects my voice. I think it probably affects my process. I guess the music that I loved and that I still love you know, I, I've listened to a lot of music. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, you know, if someone says to you, what kind of music do you like? Everybody says, oh, I like all kinds. And, but I would say, I like good music. I, I like good music. That That's the only thing I'm interested in. And what to me is good is something that is real. Something that is felt by the musician in the playing or in the construction so whether it's live or electronic or, you know, whatever kind of music it is, there's some human presence in the music that I love that is palpable. And again, it doesn't have to be even played by humans, but still there's some sense of the create the creator. And that's what I love. I call, I would just say that's soulful. And being around music a lot really gave me this view of creation, and this is really helpful when you're writing a book, as I, as, I, as I know you are, is something that you prepare for, you prepare for. You know, if you're a musician, you, you play your scales, you practice the song, you go over the chord progressions, you look at whatever you need to look at, and then you show up to play and you let go of all of that. And if you don't, then you're playing by the book and it's boring and it doesn't have any life. But it's that moment before you begin where you just, I've seen so many musicians, this is what I imagine they're doing anyway, they let go. And they, there's this flash of open space, and then the, the playing starts. And it's almost, you know, how many music bands play the same song a billion, zillion times? But some, with some, there's a sense of, oh, I'm playing it now, and all the other times don't count. And that is really useful in writing, that sense of I'm going to prepare, I'm going to know my topic, I'm going to have a clear sense of what I want to say, and then I'm going to open my computer and I'm going to let go of all of that and then go into some sort of process, some sort of flow and see what happens. And sometimes something good and sometimes not. But that really, I really love that about music. And, and I also learned, I would say that when something is being played, you never know what is being heard. And when something is being written, you never know what is being read. So, you know, music is obviously very subjective and there's no reason why you love what you do or dislike what you don't and or what you do. And there's no explanation needed, but the music is somehow, every time it's heard, it's a new song. And when with writing, every time it's read, it's a new book or a new essay or a new post or whatever. So I kind of learned, and maybe this is my natural inclination anyway, wow, me, 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 I'm talking a lot about myself, um, that whatever someone's response is to what I've read, and of course I want people to love it, I want them to love me, and if they don't like it, it hurts me, and so forth, but whatever they're reading is not what I wrote. 
which makes me feel very much more comfortable as a writer, in a sense. I feel my privacy is very protected because they're reading something. I don't know what. It may or may not have anything to do with what I read. And I, I just saw that happen so many times in music, too. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Wow. I love that. Uh, <laughs> such a useful metaphor. Good. It is. For, and, and writing is so vulnerable. And so finding these ways to 
be vulnerable with it and you know dig deep within yourself and offer something very genuine which may be sweet it may be harsh whatever it doesn't matter but something genuine it's good to have this sort of sense that your process is contained and then once the piece goes out the door it's gone well, um, I think that makes a perfect setup to talking about your actual writing career. And where I want to start uh, with this is actually with Oprah. Mm-hmm. You know, I think for many of us, uh, aspiring writers or even those of us who have written books, that's, that's like a dream moment, right? A moment right. in which a career is made. And, you know, I think what for me uh, is really interesting is how – your identity starts to shift when up until that point you weren't really known as a writer. And next thing you know, you're a best-selling author who's been on Oprah. Right. And I'm curious about the effect that that had, uh, not necessarily on your external life, because I think that part is very obvious to all of us. Mm-hmm. Curious about the, uh, the impact that that had, had on your internal life. Yeah. That's such a, that's a very kind question. I, I appreciate that. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was very powerful in certain ways. And I was on once on a, a video. They came out and interviewed me and then they ran that video. And then the topic, what happens after the wedding, was a very successful topic. They wanted to run a second show. And this time they, I went out. The first time after I was on, the books, wow, they really, yeah, got a bump. The second time I was on, I was actually on the show and then it immediately was number two on the New York Times bestseller list on like the most, you know, the heaviest load list. And I, but this is not your question, but there were other authors on the show too. And their books did not become giant successes. And it's not because my book was better or I was an awesome, more awesome interview than they were. It's because of the way the book was presented. It was almost like an infomercial because they had couples on who had asked the questions. And then I was on with, the, with Oprah and the couples and it was like they were acting out the book. So it really showed what the book was. And it, it also, my book was very easy to understand. The hard questions, 100 essential questions to ask before you say I do. No one's going to go, I wonder what that book is about. So, you know, it was very clear. It was had served a particular purpose at a particular moment in someone's life. And here's Oprah saying, everybody read this. She literally said that and held up the book and I almost fainted. And, and then couples actually talking about their experience working with the book. It was super intense for me. And I'm sitting there going... I just wrote a list of questions to ask my boyfriend. How the hell did I get here? And I'm not being disingenuous. I, I, it was a very surreal moment. And and it was being carried by fame. And I will tell you that it was one of the most positive experiences I've ever had not for the obvious reasons that you allude to like more money and more opportunities and phone calls from Us Magazine to talk about Nicole and Tom breaking up (laughs) I actually got that call that was unbelievable Um, but it was I felt affirmed like in this deep deep way that I had never felt before because I was kind of a screw up I mean I was a very bad student. I flunked eighth grade 
I barely graduated high school. I did not go to college. I just, and it's not because I tried. It's not because I didn't try. I did try. I just don't have that kind of brain, which took me many, many, many years to figure out. And then suddenly here I am and I get to call my parents and say, mom and dad, guess what? My book is going to be a New York Times bestselling book. And they were so proud of me. It was just, it was incredibly gratifying and one of the best moments of my life. And that sense of being affirmed by the world lasted to this day. It was a very pivotal moment in my life. And then the shit hit the friggin' fan. And I got offered huge money for an advance. And this was back in the day when big money was big money. And now there's still big advances, but it's back then the money was just like people were flinging it around. And the next book tanked. And I had never written a book before this first one. And now here's like lots of money being offered to me. And I have to write this other book. And I, I'm, I'm not, I have no one to blame but myself. But I did make the wrong choice based on poor advice. That I didn't, I, but I didn't have the capacity to recognize it as poor advice. And I wrote the wrong book. And it was published by the wrong person publisher and it was published in the wrong way and then everyone was really mad at me and I was so sad and so lost it took me years to get over that years I didn't write anything for a long time and then you know the next book I wrote the advance was you know I don't know what one a hundredth of the previous advance. I, I, I don't know. I'm not good at uh, percentages, but um, much less, let's say. And I remember feeling like, oh, is this how much I'm worth? And no self-helpy things really helped me, but also, as mentioned, around this New York Times bestseller list time, I looked around and suddenly there's all these people looking at me, agents and publishers and lots of money and magazines and whatever. And I had been in the music business. I had seen this happen to other people in the, in the music business. And I was like, yeah, let me try to play this game. Let me try to play it well. But let me go to Buddhist seminary too. Let me deepen my practice. Let me go on retreat let me remember what is really important in this life, which is waking up and discovering yourself and not playing that game. I had never played that game my whole life. And it was could have been equally as tempting to say, F that game. And just, ah, I'm not going to do any of that. Screw all you all. I'm just, you know, a hippie chick. But that's not, that seemed silly and stupid and not me. I was like, I've always been like, my attitude in everything I've ever done is, can I play this game? Not in a cavalier way and not to win, but can I play? Because that's what I really like. And so I thought, let me do that. And let me also 
remember the Buddha Dharma and what is really important, and that's something other than this big friggin' advance. <laughs> Why do you think that the positive affirmation doesn't last for certain people? And why do they go into a tailspin after something like that? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, there's, it's, it's a really intense ride. And all your life you think, if only I can get on that ride and reach the top, then I will be safe or I won't have anything to worry about. Everything will be cool. And that's never true, <laughs> ever. The ride continues, my friends. And it's always going up and always going down. And there is no point at which your life ever stabilizes. There's no point at which your relationship ever stabilizes. There's no point at which your profession ever stabilizes. It never stabilizes. So it's quite surprising to find that out. And there's some sense of when you believe the affirmation came from out there, then naturally when it's withdrawn, your sense of being affirmed goes with it. And that happened to me too. But there was a moment in the whole experience where I'm like, this is never going away, this sense of being affirmed. And also, again, I'd been in the music business, so I'd seen the ride. It wasn't like a surprise, Mm -hmm. although it was a shock, you know, internally. But I didn't, I wasn't confused about what public acclaim meant in terms of one's art. But I also think... And this, I, I, we all suffer from this disease that I call image poisoning, which is the sense that the way things appear is the way they are. And we all have image poisoning. And we think, if I look this happy, I'm happy. If I look successful, I'm successful. If I, you know, look rich, I'm rich. But no, there's no sense of actually trying to contact the inner meaning of that quality happy rich successful what does it mean on the inside we stop at the surface and it's nobody's fault it's just our, we've been poisoned you know from our culture for, for whatever reason i have no idea to believe that if we appear happy and successful we are so naturally when we get to a point where hey i appear very happy and successful no one in the world could say otherwise you know it's not true so you think, oh, well, there must still be many things wrong with me. It's really, I don't mean to sound like a cliche again, but it's some, that sense of inner value is uh, intimate, something you know about yourself. And other people can tell you yes or no, but unless you have that, actually, I know, I know this about me. I know I'm good. I know I'm gentle. I know I'm brilliant. I know I'm fierce. I know I'm whatever. And you keep looking for other people to tell you that about yourself. You know, that's a very painful ride. Very painful. Does that make sense? That makes all the sense in the world. Uh, it actually makes a perfect setup for, for starting to talk about the inner wisdom. But I want to ask you one other question before we do that. Sure. You ask great questions. Uh, what did you learn about success and fulfillment from being up close and personal to an iconic figure in our culture like Oprah? 
<laughs> I think that our perception of that is very, very warped and shaped by media. It's actually a perfect sort of follow-on to your question, your, your uh, comment on image poisoning. Right. Well, you know, it's very interesting how they did it on the Oprah show back then, and maybe they still do it the same, but you don't meet Oprah until you're on television with her. You know, maybe if you're Hillary Clinton, you might meet her. But otherwise, you know, you're talking to the producer, and the producer says, you sit here, and, and then... You're on television, and oh, hi. And it's really incredible the way they did it. It was actually quite brilliant, and they don't tell you any very much. They say, oh, yeah, well, you'll probably sit over here, or you'll, you know, she'll probably come to you in this segment, but actually they do it on the spot, and so you're, like, sort of startled, and you're like, you better, you better show up, because, you know, game on. But if you're sitting there thinking about it, knowing it, it becomes it would be very art, you know, sort of stiff. So they kind of shock the whole thing into a very wakeful state. It was awesome. But would I, when I was on the show for the second time, there was another author on the show who had also been on the first time, and she did great when when it was just her and Oprah. And I was like, wow. It was both first books for both of us. I'm like, wow, you did a great job. How how did you do that? And she said, well, I was really nervous, but then when I sat in front of her and looked at her, I just knew that it's like I'm in a jet that's going a million miles an hour, and I have the best pilot in the world flying it, and all I have to do is relax. And that was killer advice, and I took that to heart. And when I sat there with her, I looked at her, and I was like, yeah, I don't know who this person is. I have no sense of who she is, but she's really good at this. And I don't mean that in a, in a superficial way. I mean, she's so focused on what she's doing. I don't know what that is. I, I know I'm part of it in this particular case, but she's got her eye on something and she's going, and I'm just going to go too. And it, it was a great experience. And I remember at one point, I don't know what happened. I said something that made her laugh and we were sitting close to each other and she sort of, she laughed so hard, she sort of leaned over and like put her until like her head was like in my lap and she was laughing. And I was like, oh, dude, Oprah's head is in my lap. This is (laughs) so crazy. And it was fun. It was totally fun. It was really fun. But do I know anything about her or who she is? No. But did, did she handle her, me and her job and our topic? Oh, yeah, she was awesome. She's fucking great. Oh, excuse my language. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, well, let's shift gears a little bit. Okay. And let's start talking specifically about meditation. I mean, I think that in a lot of ways, I feel it's misunderstood uh, in our culture. It's something that I don't think even I, have, as a host who's had other you know, people talk about it, have really done justice to, and I'm hoping maybe to fix that with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, how do we start to bring about this inner wisdom in our life through a meditation practice? Is it, you know, the, the, like, I think, you know, the idea that we're going to go on retreats and sit in Buddhist gardens and all this stuff, all right. I think, uh, I think that somehow we culturally associate with meditation is not realistic, sure, but I also know not. that that's not truly how it works you know, just from having been uh, exposed to a few people. Uh, So I'd like to do a deeper dive into how we can bring this into our lives in a way that is useful. Yeah. 
Well, I think the first thing to recognize is that meditation is not a life hack. <laughs> it's just not going to hack anything. It's not a self-help technique. It's not a self-improvement method. It's not even a way to become more peaceful. It's a lot more than that. And everybody comes to meditation with an agenda, of course. Nobody's like, hey, everything in my life is perfect. I think I'll add meditation. It, it, we all come to it because there's some pain. There's something we want to fix. There's something we, some, some grief, some sorrow, some loss, some anger, some something. So that's cool. And now uh, some people come to it because they want to be a better leader or they want to be more creative. That, that's also completely cool. However, those agendas must be checked at the door once the practice begins. Because the practice itself is extremely simple. And when we try to apply our agendas to it, is it working? Or I'm not getting better. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. The magic of the practice drains and when I say the magic, what I mean is meditation is often called the practice of mindfulness. And that is very great. That's accurate. That is a good description word for it. However, it is only 50% of the truth of the story. So in meditation, you place your attention on the breath. I'm talking about the traditional practice. And when your mind strays, hey, I wonder what's for lunch, or I wonder if I have cancer, or I wonder you know, if my ideas are going to work out, no problem. You just let go and come back to the breath. You don't try to stop thinking. There's no clearing the mind of thought. There's no thinking positive thoughts. There's just thinking, thinking, thinking. But I'm focused on breath. And when my attention strays, I'm going to gently let, and I notice that, I'm going to let go and I'm going to come back to the breath. Breath, breath, breath. That is the mindfulness piece. And it speaks to the qualities of concentration and focus and precision. And the notion of your mind being in the same place as your body. Because often they're going in two different directions. Your body lies down to sleep and your mind starts answering email and so on. We all know what that's like. That's how we spend 99% of our time with some kind of mind-body split. And when you place your attention on the breath, you are doing what meditation instructors say, synchronizing mind and body. And when your mind and body are synchronized, you enter a state of kind of ease. Uh, I will tell you right up front that it becomes boring because we're so used to much more stimulus than that. But still, your breath cannot be in the past or the future. It can only be in the present. So when your mind is riding that breath, you are training your mind to be in the present. What's going to happen in the present, nobody knows. So that's the mindfulness piece. But at the same time, as you know, millennia of meditators will attest, myself included, as your practice develops, you start to see things more clearly in your life. Insights arise, you make connections, you notice things you hadn't noticed before, you have more ideas. And this is the second piece, and it's called awareness. Your awareness expands. And these two things, mindfulness and awareness, are inseparable. So it's more accurate to call it the practice of mindfulness awareness. And the awareness piece, which is impossible to achieve without the mindfulness piece, is where the kind of juju 
lies, the magic that I referred to before. Because when your awareness expands, you don't know what it's going to find. You don't know what idea you're going to come up with. You don't know what insight you're going to have. You just have to go with it. And if you want to be innovative, if you want to be creative, if you want to, you know, break barriers and and do things that have never been done before, to have an expanded awareness is very useful. But you can't game it. You can't game it. It simply arises through the simplicity of the practice. Don't take my word for that. You should try it yourself and see. But that's why meditation is so famously associated with qualities like compassion and wisdom and patience and wakefulness. It's not because of the breath, breath, breath. It's because of the expanded mind. So if you want that piece, you have to let go of your agenda while you practice. Afterwards, you can bring it back. Mm-hmm. But the magic comes from allowing it to just unfold. I hope I said that clearly. Did I? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so how has all this evolved into uh, the community, the Open Heart Project? Well, I started for, uh, kind of started with just total crassly commercial motivation, which was, it's about four years ago now, I was in the music business, as I've said. And so I see where the publishing thing is going. I could, anybody could see that. But if you'd been in the music business, you're like, oh yeah, I get this. You're going to have to own your own platform. So I'm thinking, okay, well, how do I do that? I don't want to just say, hey, sign up for my mailing list. I will offer something of value. How about that? And I could uh, actually teach people how to meditate. I see it constantly. People come to retreats, they go home, they never do it again. They need some support in their house. So if you sign up for this, I'll send you a 10-minute guided meditation. At the top, at the beginning, it was three times a week. But then, it, you know, now it's once a week. And it's just 10 minutes and it's free and just push play and I'll talk you through the practice. And we'll sit together. And then people started asking questions. And so I started tacking, you know, prefacing the practice with an answer to a question and that format remains it was sort of like a two to three minute five minute talk and then a 10 minute practice if you know i i i that's not hard for me to do although you know i come up with something new each time and so on but then it just started to grow and then it now there's almost 15,000 people and I don't know how to self-publish with, I don't have, you know, my time is, it's kind of overwhelming right now and it's, it's a little out of hand. But then I started, it's, I was like, oh, wow, this is interesting. People like this. I have to make some money. I'm not writing books right now. I will start teaching classes online you know, four-week programs on introduction to Buddhism or the wisdom of a broken heart based on that book and And then there were other people that wanted to just go deeper than 10 minutes once a week. So I created a sort of subscription model. It's, you know, it's just about almost a year old. It's still quite small. There's about 300 people. But it's, it, about a year ago, I saw, oh, wow, this is becoming a really robust, full-on Dharma center, meditation center in the cloud. 
It has all the things a meditation center has. It has a teacher. It has a core practice. It has a daily practice. It has guest teachers. It has introductory programs. It has deeper programs. It's a whole thing. So, yeah, that's, you know, I'm not sure <laughs> where it's all going to go, but it's uh, interesting and exhausting and wonderful and I'm so happy to do it it's like I can do this it's something I can actually offer so I'm happy to offer it you know like to the world is what I mean you know, at the beginning of our conversation uh, you referred to this as your magnum opus mm-hmm. and I am wondering if that is something that you only discover after 20 years of building a body of work that's a good question for me, it is. And I would guess that for others, it's so. But some people are like savants, mm-hmm. and they just, their first work is their magnum opus. And they didn't, nobody knows it at the time. And who knows, maybe I'll do nothing else or a million other things after this. I don't know. But for me, I'm a late bloomer. I come out of the gate slowly. It's taken me time, and yeah, so I, for me, it's this way, and I'm sure there are other people, many other people who are like this, and if, you know, shout out to all the late bloomers, if you think, wait, I, I didn't make my first million by the time I was 30, everything's over, you know, just wait, <laughs> wait, there's, you know, trust yourself, and 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 this is really actually getting quite deep the open heart project because and you know change the subject if there's something you're not interested in but I think I mentioned early on that when you formally become a Buddhist it's called taking refuge and people have been have said to me over the years I would like to do that I know that this is my path I've been doing this for six months or two years and I just know it and I would say well I can't help you but you could go to this place or that place and they would say, well, I live in a yurt in Alaska or, you know, I live in Bolivia or whatever. There is no such place. So then I got, like, how do I, how do I help them? I'm not, I can't give refuge. I'm not like a capital T teacher. But it, through a series of, you know, some wonderful suggestions and my meditation teacher, the person who gave me refuge, gave refuge online to 26 people in like seven different countries who all took these formal vows. And that was the biggest thing ever to happen in the Open Heart Project to me. It was this turning point of, okay, I'm not just sending out like popcorn style meditation instruction. Now these people are on a path and I want, I have to, I don't mean that in an onerous sense. I mean, I've taken the responsibility for helping them. So now I have to offer something that has more of a path quality to it. And for people that are thinking about how do I make my meditation practice continue, this notion of a path quality doesn't mean any has to be a formal religion of any kind, but a sense of this is going somewhere, this is how I deepen it, this is where I can go for guidance, this is how this is where I can go for understanding how to understand what how my mind is changing. Without that path quality, 
no practice will sustain. No mindfulness corporate meditation practice will last. I'm making this very bold statement because everyone will show up for the first one and no one will show up for the fourth class without this sense of path. So right now for me, my personal work, my creative focus is on how do I create a path in the cloud that is genuine and rooted in tradition because I'm super traditional when it comes to the practice of Buddhism that functions in this, in the ether. And how do I not screw it up is mainly my main question. And so I'm very inspired to play that out. I sort of went on a ramble. Hmm. I hope that's okay. Well, this has been amazing. Really? Yeah, how so? Uh, it's just been very thought provoking. To me, it's one of those conversations I will probably have to go back to more than a couple of times to get everything <laughs> packed into it. And I like conversations like that a lot. Uh, good, I do too. I do too. And and yeah, there. You know, we live. We're looking for quick fixes, and sometimes there are quick fixes. But for the, many things, there aren't. But a deeper, more soulful, more gratifying exploration is required and possible and and there's so much wisdom coming to us now in the west on how to have an inner life and we're so lucky to be living at this time when these teachings are becoming available hmm. so really lucky one last question for you yes this is how yes we finish every interview okay what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable authenticity there's no question genuineness and genuineness means a person who is connected to their inner experience and allowing it to animate them, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. So without question, it's this quality of authentic presence. Well, uh, Susan, this has been beautiful. Uh, <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your story and uh, your journey and your insights with our listeners. Well, you're awesome. I really, really appreciate it. I, I I'm so happy to, to you have an amazing community and your interviews are really fantastic and I'm, I'm just happy to be a part of the posse right now. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Wednesday on The Unmistakable Creative. Uh, so I, I came back home and it was, it was actually this really, this really interesting moment because it, it forced me to focus on what had happened because when you're in Italy and you lose your job, you're like, it's fine. Everything's okay. I'm going to eat some more pasta. We'll be great. Uh, but I'm going through passport security and the the gentleman at the passport uh, station is looking, you know, he's looking at my ID and he's asking me a couple of questions. And one of them is, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a copywriter. And I paused and I said, Actually, that's incorrect. I was a copywriter. I just got let go on Friday. And he paused and he looks up at me. And like I had this, you know, human connection with someone in passport control, which very rarely happens. Uh, and he, he pauses and he looks up at me and he says, are you serious? And I said, yeah. And he said, I am so, so sorry. Tune in for my conversation with Geraldine Duritter about finding new beginnings in our endings. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.